So Matt, we've got both mics set up. Yep. Uh, but we're missing the third mic tonight. We are, unfortunately. Uh, Mr. Bodigheimer, Bodie Bodie, cannot make it this evening, so it's uh, just you and I. I guess so. Are we going to flip to see who opens the podcast? I'm not exactly, I don't even really know how to do that. Bodie does it every week. So. I know. Well, let, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm going to crack open this beer. And we'll figure it out while the intro plays. All right, well, uh, welcome to episode 41. Of the Yeah You Ride podcast. That was great, Matt. We just kind of split it there. See how that went? Yeah, it was beautiful. I wanted to be fair. Yeah, kind lovely. Of, you know, kind of open it and then throw it to you for the episode number. Do you yeah, like how that I'm, worked out? I think that worked brilliantly. Yeah, sure did. Yeah, so episode 41. Yep. We're getting up there. I know. We're getting our, middle-aged. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We suddenly feel like we're just, you know, sort of on our way to 50. <sighs> Yeah, well, it's uh, you're you're already there. I'm I'm rapidly approaching it. Yeah, oh, uh, you're talking you're talking years now. In real years, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and we are actually about uh, at the one year mark of when we started doing this podcast. Yes, we are. Uh, maybe we've actually passed it. I think it was early March that we did our first episode last year. So we haven't we haven't quite kept up doing them weekly. Obviously, if we had, we'd been. We'd be at or around episode 52, as there yeah. are 52 weeks in the year. Uh, so we've missed a few, but we've been doing it for about a year now. Yeah. I mean, sometimes life gets in the way, doesn't it? It, and, uh, it does. But uh, I think we've done pretty good. I think, you know, 40 in a year is, uh, is pretty good going. Yeah. Some people are probably like, way, way too many. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah. Scale it back, guys. Yeah, I know. I don't uh, like listening to you that much. But this reminds me of the episode the last time it was just the two of us together, Matt. We were in your greenhouse. That's right. Recording episode two or three, I think, I think of the three, podcast. Yeah. I think that was episode three. All uh, seems seems like years ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It Well, it seems like a year ago. Yes, yeah. the, more appropriately. Yeah. Yes. So let's jump right into it because we got good stuff this week. We uh, had yep. an exceptionally exciting race over this past weekend. Uh, mm. uh, Shall La we? Classisma. Yes, let's cue the music. San Remo. Thank you for that musical intro, Matt. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to hear it. 
That is, uh, it, it's the first real monument of the year, although yep. according to the Yeah You Ride podcast, this would be the second monument of the year. In our new revised monuments, yes, I would. Uh, it would be the second after Strade Bianchi, which uh, is, is the newest of the monuments. So new, in fact, that nobody else calls it a monument except for us. Although I, I tell you, I don't want to digress, but I definitely heard some chatter uh, on some of the other cycling podcasts and in some of the cycling publications. Right. There is consensus behind the fact that Strada Bianchi is a very special race. Yes. Uh, that it is perhaps, oh, I know where I was reading this. I was. It, it was in the, the lovely anthology of uh, cycling essays that you guys gave me for my 50th birthday. Mm. Uh, and there was a great article, and I can't tell you who it was written by now, but uh, and and the article was written in 2013, so even you know five years or so ago, and even at that point in time, the author um, was mentioning that that Strada Bianchi was uh, one of the exceptions to the rule that you know, it's hard to break into cycling and get a race that achieves the sort of status that that race has achieved in such a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, truly a phenomenal uh, achievement, I would say. But Milan San Remo has been a classic and has been a monument for some time and has been around for a long time. And um, it's really sort of the the opening monument traditionally of the season and yep. did not disappoint this year. No, it, it certainly didn't. Uh, yeah, La Classicissima. Classicissima? Lots of, lots lots of s- 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 in there. And, I'm sorry. Uh, I, think I, left, I think I left one out when I first uh, said it. And it's also called La Primavera, isn't it? Yes. Uh, which, you know, the spring, uh, race of the spring. That's right. So we have the race of the spring, and then we have the race in the fall, the uh, Giro Lombardia. That's uh, right. The race of the falling leaves. Yeah. We uh, called this one the race of the falling snow, I think, Uh sort of joking because uh, in years past there had been uh, I think it was was it 2012 was yeah. the one where it was just this horrendous uh, snowstorm where they had to bust them um, bust them basically over the mountain didn't they and then they had to remount and uh, and carry on the race but in spite of the cold winter so far and especially recently in Europe no such snow this year at least to uh, stop the race it was yeah. uh, they, they made it over the pass and, uh, you know, I don't know, where do you want to start with this one? I mean, this is the kind of race that can have lots of, lots of little things happening over the first, it's a long, long race. Yeah, it's uh, the longest it was, of all the pro races, 290 yeah. odd kilometers. Yeah, over seven hours of racing. Yep. And uh, a lot can happen, of course, over those seven hours. But as is the case with uh, a lot of bike races, uh, the real action sort of heats up in about the last 20k of the race really yeah it's a real it's a slow burn isn't it i mean you, the, I, I don't think they ever show the entire race i mean it's it is phenomenally long and it was especially long this year because it was into a headwind uh, most of the way i mean it's pretty much it's a straight you know if you look at it it's kind of almost as the crow fry flies from milan to san remo just heading west the whole time Right. Um, you know, and it goes over, it kind of goes over this one mountain or biggish hill or whatever, and then they come down and onto the, you know, onto the coast there, and it basically just follows the coast all the way to, to San Remo. There uh, are two climbs toward the end, uh, which tend to sort of make the selection, and it's the, uh, the Paggio, the last climb, that is the, is the real selection maker. Yep. 
and and again was this year. Bigger bigger group uh, got to the base of that climb this year than in in many years past. It's often been whittled down a bit uh, by attrition, both over the the the, the first big the climb. At, at, well, right, but even oh, yeah. the even the first uh, it's not even it's a categorized climb, but it's not a it's not a massively categorized no. climb. Maybe a Cat Three climb, right? But occasionally, some the peloton breaks up over over that the the Paseo. I'm not sure what the name of the yeah. the Paseo is there, and it's that's toward the middle of the race. And there's a lot of uh, sort of up and down along the coast until mm-hmm. you get to the uh, Chipresa. Yes. Uh, which can sometimes make more of a selection than it made this year. It didn't really this year. The group stayed together. No. Most of the sprinters stayed with the group, and I would say it looked like there was probably a hundred people, a hundred odd people in the peloton when they got to the to the base of the Poggio. Yes, it's really about was really about position this year, uh, headed into that final climb, wouldn't you say? More than anything. Uh, yeah, I think position definitely played into it. Uh, you know, and I know, uh, Kwiatkowski mentioned that, that, you know, Sky kind of got, you know, he was the defending champion. Um, Sky were like on the front and then by the time they got to the Poggio, they were further back in the pack and really, um, you know, really poorly positioned. Uh, whereas Bahrain Merida, uh, and FDJ, uh, and, and Mitchelton Scott as well. Where I right. played it, Mitchelton Scott had done an amazing job positioning Caleb Ewan right near the front. Uh, Barry Marita had three or even four guys up there for Vincenzo Nibali, and uh, FDJ, you know, did, had done a really good job on the way in, really kind of bossing the peloton uh, for them and Arno Demar. And let's just cut to it and talk about how it ended. For anyone that didn't see it, uh, Vincenzo Nibali got away on the Poggio. Yep. Made the decisive move that no one uh, either was able to or managed uh, for one reason or another to cover. Had about a nine-second gap over the top of the Poggio and then descended like a madman down the other side into San Remo and uh, held on sort of put his, <laughs> put his head down and time trialed his way and just hung on to win by two or three seconds over a sprinting pack. Well, funnily enough, though, he actually, the pack, him and the pack all got the same time. Is that right? Because he sat up to celebrate yeah. uh, with a hard-charging Caleb Ewan. I thought for a second he was actually going to get passed on the line. It was it was like, oh my gosh, I, I would not have uh, the courage to... Uh, to post up at that moment. Yeah, I thought the same thing as I saw him doing it. Of course, the camera foreshortens the distance yeah. between, you know, the, the the winner and the sprinting pack. But it was awfully close. Yeah, uh, and when you see it side on and it's like, wow, he really, you know, I mean, Ewan was really, you know, obviously less than a second behind him. So huge, huge win for, for Nibali. I mean, he's yep. won Grand Tours, obviously. Yep. Uh, he's a known rider and he's a rider who has... A number of amazing Palmaris in his pocket, uh, or to his credit, he has won a monument in the past. He won the Giro Lombardia twice. Twice he won it, he won it last he year. He just won it. That's yeah. right. So he, this is two monuments in a row for That's him. Right. Uh, and but this one is one that I think really helps cement his legacy as an incredible bike racer. Yes, it was an audacious attack. 
his team kind of did a great job of pretty much it's I mean it's a pretty narrow road yeah and they kind of just blocked the road yeah, while well, he let, went yeah let's talk about that for a second because it was pretty impressive how they did that uh, and 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 I'll introduce this idea by talking about a, a short conversation that I had uh, on by way of Instagram comments uh, with someone who was posting on the uh, on the backfoot uh, Instagram account mm. Uh, who was basically saying, you know, how in the world do, you know, 99 of the best bike racers yeah. in the world let Vincenzo Nibali ride away from them on the Poggio, knowing right. that if they don't catch him, he's one of the world's best ascenders. He's going to have a gap, and nobody's going to catch him on the downhill. And and my point uh, to this to this guy who, who had commented uh, was, well, not so quick. Yeah, there was a little bit of looking around for a second there, but you're absolutely right. You mentioned it, Matt. Bahrain Merida had gotten themselves on the front, and they managed to do this. It, it, it appeared to be quite intentional. I hope it was intentional because if it was, it was brilliant racing tactics. They just at the very moment that Nibali sort of snuck up from maybe he was he was in the top 10 at the time, but he was right. not sitting on the front. No. Bahrain Morita had three other guys sitting on the front, and at the very moment that Nibali attacked, which was the perfect place on that climb for him to attack, mm-hmm. Bahrain, Bahrain Morita had spread themselves out across the road in such a way that, like you say, they blocked the road right. uh, even just for that for that half a second that it took Nibali to get the jump on the on the group. Right. And and it was almost game over at that point. I mean, look, nobody let him get away. Some yeah. people took up the chase as quickly as they could, but it was very well played and and it was it was A, a decisive move at the right time and B, an excellent job by the team not just in 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 blocking but also in in being there in the right place at the front of that front yeah. cuz you know Remember, they had to get up there. They had to work their way to the front and get up there and to be on the front as they got to the base of the Poggio. And, and you know, nobody's nobody's just letting, you know, three guys from the same team right. get to the front of that without a tremendous amount of work. So yeah, kudos everybody, to that whole team. Everybody's fighting to do it. Everybody yeah. wants to be on the front yeah. there, right? Because I mean, it would be interesting to know if that was exactly the plan that they had at the start of the day or not. I haven't really heard anything regarding it. But one thing I did notice, I don't know if you saw it, was on the Chipressa, Nibali made this, Nibali nearly crashed. He he made this move to jump to the front. I thought, oh, he's going to do his classic failed Chipressa attack. Right. And uh, and he, he actually nearly hit a car parked by the side of the road. He squeezed through the tiniest of gaps and it looked like he was going to jump off the front and then he just kind of sat up again. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, it was, it was kind of like, was he going to try and do it and then decided better of it? Or it was, it was an, it was an odd little moment. And, or maybe it was just like, you know, so everybody thought, oh, he doesn't have it today or something like that. And yeah. A little, ignore. sort of a little faint, a little a dummy. fake, fake yeah. move, dummy move. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's done this, um, you know, it's it's kind of a regular feature is the Nibali attack because he, he, I mean, he races it pretty much every year, and he will try and go at some point, and it's never it's never come off for him, and it just, I mean, it came together absolutely perfectly, you know, on the day this this year it was, oh, and, and obviously a massive Herculean effort to um, get that kind of a gap on on those guys. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I wonder if. Because, you know, because the Poggio kind of winds, you know, there's some switchbacks on there going up. I think 
where he went was probably where it was a tailwind because it was probably heading back east. Ah, good point. Where he went, so he could take advantage of that tailwind and get get some gap. And then, of course, you know, when they come around the switchback, they're into a headwind, which decreases the advantage for anybody trying to chase him down. But uh, yeah, phenomenal, really uh, great race. It, you also mentioned Matt uh, that uh, Caleb Ewan, who won the essentially the bunch sprint to yep. finish second, uh, that his team had done a good bit of work to to get him to the front of the group at the Poggio. Because again, if you're not in the first you know 20, 25 riders going up that thing, uh, or especially coming over the top of that thing, you've really got no chance. It really it it it, it turns into a, a single file descent down that hill, and if you're with a big group like you know like came down that descent it's awfully hard for anybody to to get away or to really pass very effectively on that so you've got to be near the front of that and then once it once things sort of flatten out again again if you're if you've come over the top of the Poggio in 50th position there's no way that you're going to get yourself back up to the front no matter what kind of lead out train you have and in fact Milan San Remo is not a sort of lead out train kind of kind of sprint, is it? It's no, it's. Da- I mean, it's very. It, it's usually it's going to be a smaller bunch that's that's going to be sprinting it out, and uh, and it's really more down to sort of individual. Everybody's kind of making their own making their own way, sort of sprint, which is why someone like Peter Sagan is always, you know, a, a favorite in a race like this because it's uh, a little bit more of a you know, catch as catch can sort of sprint. Well, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's been known as the sprinter's classic, you know, but really, I mean, Nibali's win proves that any kind of rider can take this race. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's unusual. I mean, the, the way it sets up with the Cipressa and the Poggio um, right at the end there. And I think just the, the, the sheer length of it as well is a lot of people are going to be tired. And then, you know, the sprinters are not going to have their top, top end. Although, Caleb Ewan certainly looked like he had his top end because he, he was, he was, the, you know, if it had been, he would have absolutely won. Well, he did win the bunch sprint, you know, just happened to be a guy still in front of him. Um, well, yeah. And you're, you're to your point of, you know, the, the good sprinters, not necessarily always, even if they happen to make it over the Poggio, sometimes having their legs uh, knocked down enough that they don't have their true sprinters legs. Last year's race with Kwiatkowski, uh, out sprinting Peter Sagan right. uh, was uh, an illustration of, of that point. You know, uh, in any given race, in a, in, a, in a regular bunch sprint finish, you'd always favor Peter Sagan over uh, Kwiatkowski in the sprint. But yeah. uh, Milan San Remo, after seven hours and and plenty of work, uh, you know, the, the legs are different, I suppose. And speaking of lead-out trains, you know, we I think we were all commenting on it. Uh, it really it. We thought Nibli, I thought Nibli was going to get caught. I was like, I thought, oh, there's no way he's going to manage to stay away in that last kilometer. Uh, and Quickstep had a train there for, for Viviani. They did. and But Viviani just did not, he didn't have the legs at all at the end. He was, you know, he just, uh, he faded in the sprint uh, pretty dramatically. So we had Caleb Ewan in second, and in third was Arno Demar, Arno Demar two years ago. That's right, and yep. and again FDJ doing a, a very good job of keeping him in a good position uh, coming to the to the base of that uh, final climb. So your comment to me after the race was, you know, all of the teams that did well to position their riders in in good places at the base of the Poggio. Uh, 
were on the podium. Yeah. Nibali, whose team sort of blocked for him and, and allowed him to get that escape. Uh, Caleb Ewan, uh, whose team, Mitchelton Scott, uh, helped deliver him to the front at the right time. And Arno DeMar, whose team had done a lot of work on the front um, throughout the day and had uh, and had gotten him also positioned well uh, coming to the base of the Paggio. So uh, teamwork made the dream work. It did. Uh, I did notice that uh, Vincenzo Nibali um, had made a bet with his wife that uh, if he won, she had to buy him a Porsche. Is so, that right? Yeah. And uh, I also noticed that uh, Dan Lloyd of uh, GCN, uh, he commented on Twitter that uh, uh, a friend of his said, oh, Nibali's 150, 50, 150 to one. Uh, should I have, you know, should I throw a few quid on him? And he was like, yeah, no, don't bother. He never does anything. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, look. Um, we can segue in, in just a moment in terms of, uh, because I was another uh, who didn't necessarily bank on Nibali having a great race. We mm. can talk a little bit, uh, segue into our, into our fantasy roundup after this. But let me leave the race uh, with a final question to you, Matt. Mm. Vincenzo Nibali uh, had always been a dream of his to win Milan San Remo. Uh, he accomplished that this year, obviously. Yeah, uh, as an Italian, winning a very famous Italian race. Yeah, uh, I'm presuming you know the answer to this, but who was the last Italian to uh, win Milan San Remo? That would be the Peacock of Sandrigo, Pippo Pozzato. How about that? Yeah, Which 2006. Was, that's right. Yeah, it's been a while, and Pozzato was in this race. He was there. Yep. Uh, didn't didn't factor into the into the uh, <laughs> no. results really, but no. Nope. Uh, in fact, I think at one point, uh, I think I saw the old uh, shot of the back of the peloton. From the moto at the back of the peloton and he was uh there having a nice relaxing ride <laughs> yeah. yeah drinking an espresso maybe uh, possibly i think he was maybe dreaming of uh the post-race party on his yacht yeah he was uh, probably doing some social media while he was uh, at the back there so yeah so uh, segueing now into our uh, into our uh fantasy roundup and mm. uh of course cueing the aldo novo So, Milan San Remo, also known as the Sprinters Classic, as you mentioned, Matt. Yes. Um, however, I, on my fantasy team, paid the price for assuming that this race this year, for some reason, was not going to come down uh, to a bunch sprint. I mean, obviously, it didn't come down to a bunch sprint for the win, but it was a big enough group behind Nibali right. that uh, a lot of sprinters figured into the overall results. And that pretty much shot big holes through uh, through my fantasy performance this week. I was uh, second to last in our Yeah You Ride Fantasy League, and the only team that I beat was a team that apparently did not have any riders on it. Yes, uh, yeah, quite quite an achievement on your part there. Uh, uh, I'm just looking at the league right now. Hang on, there we go. It is the Yeah You Ride Spring Classics. Uh, got a bunch of entries uh, this year, which is uh, great. Yes, uh, 
Our friend Nathaniel um, did not actually set a team, although he is in there. So I don't know how that's going to work out for him. Hopefully he'll, he'll have some uh, riders ready for E3. That's right. He will have an opportunity to make transfers, um, transferring no riders for some riders, I presume, is what his theory yeah, was. I wonder if he's going to get charged for actually adding riders. <laughs> so he will use half, that would take half of his uh, credits. That's true. We'll have to, we'll have to see. Uh, but I'm just looking at your squad. Yeah, you had Kwiatkowski and Alaphilippe. And uh, Berghardt, saw him on the front on the, up the Poggio, didn't we? He was, he was he riding hard. Daniel Haas and Berghardt were both uh, toward the front. And I thought for a moment, wow, things are looking okay for me. Alaphilippe was up there. Kwiatkowski was up there. Yeah. Um, you know, that was uh, was looking good for me for a moment. But uh, things, things, really, uh, things really changed in a hurry. And uh, again, I didn't have any true sprinters. I suppose you could say Berghardt was... It, it was something of a sprinter but uh I mean, yeah van avermaet i mean oliver nason uh that's probably a pretty good finish on him uh but uh so you had wisniowski on your team and i believe he crashed and he may have broken something i think he may have been involved in the crash with cavendish uh a few riders were down in that that was uh that was a pretty uh pretty hairy moment i mean i think it's astonishing uh that he wasn't hurt more than uh, than he was and he already had a broken rib and cavendish then, yeah yeah well it, it sounds like the worst injury was that he re-aggravated his already broken rib i think yeah i think he concussion. actually broke i think he broke another rib as okay. well yeah on the, on the same side so yeah and uh, and got some pretty bad whiplash so uh not a great start to the year for him so far uh three crashes so far for for cav so our uh, our good friend, uh, gorgeous George Morse, mm. uh, won this week. He did. Uh, he took the Milan San Remo Prime. Which have do do we have a do we have an actual? We prize do. For that? We have. Uh, in fact, I need to go talk to our good friend uh, Charlie Thomas um, and pick up some of that stuff. But we have some some uh, lovely bike law swag for uh, for the Primes. And then we have gift cards for the podium from Urban South Brewery, so we got some we got some nice stuff for for everybody this year. All right. Well, we've got looks like uh, twenty odd entries in our uh, classic leagues this year, so uh, we will keep everyone posted on how that goes. And uh, Matt, how did you feel about your team? Where where are you these days? Mm. I did pretty good. Um, one, two, three. Oh, look four. at that! You and Bodie are tied. We are tied on, on three hundred and thirty points. We are. We've got uh, Bodie, Bodie's Boone and Ballers, mm. and you are classically trained. Yes, I like that. Yeah. Clever, so clever uh, name. Yeah, we got some. Uh, obviously, we're not going to uh, win the best team name. So uh, I don't know. We've got some. Uh, uh, what do you think? Is anything standing out to you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this has nothing to do with cycling or <laughs> classics or anything, but, uh, I mean, the name that's standing out for me is Mrs. Peach's Fried Chicken because <laughs> yeah. I, I have no idea where that comes from. I, I don't know what that means. Uh, there's actually quite a few things here I don't really understand what they mean at all, but, uh, yeah, um, not sure. Uh, Jeff here has his team called Classically Last, um, but he's actually sitting third from last. You're actually behind him. That's right. Uh, and uh, so 
drawing attention to uh, Bo Dennis, uh, who uh, who actually uh, sent us some mail, didn't he, last week? Yeah, that's right. Uh, or the week before. And uh, he had DeMar on his team, but he's also got some interesting choices in here. TJ Van Garderen uh, is a bold choice for the classics, Absolutely. I would say. Uh, Mikel Landa, also another very bold choice. Um not known as classics riders, those two. So someone, uh, someone has uh, Chris Froome on their team too, if I'm I not believe, mistaken. I believe I? they do. Yeah, I'm not sure who. Which, is, which leads to a sort of an interesting point. Um, you know, you pick these teams, and obviously, um, no one to talk uh, because my team choices for this year were uh, poor. But uh, not necessarily. You wouldn't necessarily say that going into it. Obviously, their performance was poor, but no one has a crystal ball. Uh, but I did pick riders that, that would typically be uh, good classics riders. Yep. Interesting that some people in, in, uh, in our uh, fantasy league seem to have picked a team as you might pick a uh, team for a grand tour, almost. Uh, yes, it does appear that way. Uh, I think you've got some good chances to, uh, to make up some ground in E3 coming up uh, with uh, Van Avermaet and uh, Nassen Kukulair. Our, uh, I'm glad that you also picked uh, my favorite rider, uh, Damien Godin. Absolutely. He wasn't even in Milan-San Remo, but no. uh, I, I picked him because I knew I wanted him for some of the later races, and I didn't want to waste future transfers on him. Me too. So, so uh, you know, Matt, it brings up, you know, thinking about people picking Grand Tour riders for, mm. for a classic squad. sort of makes me think about the difference between classics and, and Grand Tours. Uh, which are many, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the classics, obviously, a a one day race where the winner at the end of the day is the winner of the race. Very straightforward format, as opposed to the uh, long and grueling Grand Tour format, right. where often the winner of the of the the overall race uh, isn't even factoring into the the race on a on a day to day basis and it and it makes it difficult for a lot of people that aren't big fans of cycling or sort of amateur cycling fans to follow a grand tour you know they think that the guy who right. comes across the line first is the person that's winning the race and then you say to him oh well no that person's not really even he's you know he's two hours behind he's not even you know factoring into the to the overall and people sort of get confused by this idea right. But yet, the Grand Tours are the sorts of races that are the most popular amongst uninitiated cycling fans. Um, and it seems to def sort of defy logic a bit in that they're much longer and harder to follow. Right. Um, they're much less straightforward. Yes. Uh, for the reasons that we've talked about. You know, why is it that there's so much focus in cycling on the Grand Tours and specifically, of course, the Tour de France uh, with all these nuanced uh, ways that riders win and positioning and who's a GC rider and who's a climber and who's a time trialist and right. who's a sprinter and all this other stuff. Whereas you have these beautiful, brilliant one-day classics races where all that goes out the window yeah. and all you have to do is pay attention to the person who comes across the line first and right. that's the winner. Yes. Like, that's the kind of racing that, that most amateur fans would find, at least as far as I could see, find more interesting and more compelling and a bit easier and more straightforward to follow. But yet, right. no one really knows anything about the classics. No, it's. I, I think, I mean, I would say that 
you know, for, I guess, like non-Europeans and even like non-mainland Europeans. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, uh, you know, it was, you uh, the, the Tour de France was the only race that was on TV in the UK. You didn't get to see any other bike races at all. Right. And... And I think if you asked any average American, name a bicycle race. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that, that all of them would be able to name the Tour de France, but if you took the most popular response from a segment of 100, <coughs> 100 people, mm-hmm. 98 of them are probably going to say the Tour de France is you know, yeah. th- is the name of a bike race. And then if you said name a bike racer, and they would say Lance. That's right. You know? Well, and therein may lie the answer. And I think when we were having this conversation off air— with Bodie when he was when he was around and if he were around now he might say this that that indeed is the reason is the answer to the question at least here in the states right as to why the grand tours are always going to be more popular that everybody um, sort of associates bicycle racing with the Tour de France and with Lance Armstrong for better or worse right and um, and the rest of it is just kind of an afterthought yeah and, you know, I would say also, I mean, um, not to, you know, I mean, obviously Lance Lance is a huge influence on, on bike, you know, bike racing and bu- people following bike racing in this country. But I think Greg LeMond also before him, you know, really kind of paved the way for the American audience and, you know, what watching the tour. And, yeah. Well, and- I mean, absolutely. As a, as a, as a gentleman of a certain age, um, you know, I remember when, when Greg LeMond was, was racing and winning the tour. And that was when I was a, a, a teenager and in my, in my twenties, early twenties. And, um, you know, that really is what got me focused on European bike racing. Uh, I, I had always ridden my bike and played around, you know, bike racer, uh, with my little cycling cap and my, and my dad's, uh, Raleigh record with, uh, mm. full campy. As a kid, which I uh, hijacked from him and rode around the neighborhood, but in any event, I digress. Uh, it was it was Greg LeMond that that uh, that brought cycling and bike racing specifically, you know, on, into my mind. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's uh, you know now we live in a different age where we can get all these internet feeds and subscribe to various services and get to see a lot more racing. I mean, we're, we're really kind of spoiled for choice now in lots of ways we, we, that was, we can actually get to see all this stuff now. Uh, so I think that's probably going to change more. And I think Sagan's changing that, you know, because I think good point, because I think now we have this superstar and who isn't a grand tour racer, but he's there at the, He's there at the Tour de France and he's winning the green jersey and but he's also you know people are going to watch the world championships for because of Sagan and people are going to people are going to start you know watching the classics and stuff more because I think because of Sagan. So I think it's he's introducing an, an this generation of you know non I'd say non-Europeans who are and certainly like non-Belgians. I mean for Belgians this is the time of year, isn't it? It's right. this, and then it's cross, and the bit in the middle, the summer, is less interesting. You know, they're not as interested in that. You know, if I were a race promoter, if I was someone that that owned the broadcasting rights to uh, some of these spring classics, I would, and and they probably are doing this, and I just don't realize how difficult it is to break into the American sports market. But I would be yeah. doing everything I could to try to sell 
the U.S. market on one-day bicycle racing. Right. And and figure out a way to segue from the sort of grand tour model because, you know, NBC always, you know, on, on regular broadcast NBC, they show stages of the, of the tour in the summertime. Um, I would, I would be trying harder to, to leverage some of the, of the beauty and the awesome racing. And again, the sort of straightforwardness of the one day classics, uh, if I were in charge of, of showing bike racing here in the States and figure out a way to get more Americans interested because it fits in more with the American diet for sport too. The sort of, you know, right. here's the winner. He crossed the line first. He won. It's like a, it's like a NASCAR race, right? Right. Um, well, I mean, and speaking of, of that, I think we're, you know, did you see that this year there are going to be two Hammer Series events? I did not, no. Yes. So there's going to be one in uh, Denmark, I believe, okay. and as well as the one in Holland okay. that they had. So, and I, but I think the one in Denmark is going to be during the Giro d'Italia. So, you know, obviously you're not going to be getting a lot of the bigger names from the team doing the event. Um, but that's also kind of interesting too. I mean, I think, I, although we, maybe you'd get some people that are going to do the tour instead of the Giro, um, that, that would come to the hammer, the hammer series during the Giro to stay in shape. It's obviously not nearly as taxing as a three week stage race. So right. maybe you still can, can work that into your tour program. I get a feeling that I get the feeling that I think it's a good, um, place for a lot of the Neo pros. You know, a lot of yeah. the under twenty three riders and stuff to really kind of show show that show what they've got in a in an interesting format. Yeah, but, well, that was I. You know, we we talked about it on the podcast last year when it happened. I think the three of us were all very taken with with that series and and looking forward to uh, the next installment of it this year. Yeah, that they, would also be something great to try to bring over to the states, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely. And you know that you know what else we need in the United States? This would be great. We need a big, awesome one-day race. Yes, because you know I'm thinking you were talking about Sagan, and Sagan has managed to crack the the U.S. market, and and he has gotten you know, he has gotten some celebrity and some popularity, uh, but it is because he's come to the tour of California, which again it's not a three-week grand tour, but it is an eight-stage or seven-stage uh, week-long week-long tour mm. and still suffers from some of the difficulty of following a a long uh, uh a long stage race whereas uh, he would be a great personality to have over in the states you know doing some sort of one day epic race right speaking of which that just reminded me of when i was living in san francisco and this was at the height of uh lance fever uh, we had that San Francisco Grand Prix, which was a terrific one-day race, amazing location, that climb up uh, Fillmore Street, which is like super steep, like 22% climb. Yeah, I don't remember the race, though. It was great. It was a circuit, but it was a big circuit. It started out on a larger circuit, and then it the circuit, then it like ended up on loops on a smaller circuit. I mean, it basically went through North Beach and... Uh, and the marina and uh, kind of sort of through downtown a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a great, I mean, I, you know, it was great to watch, uh, really, really exciting bike racing. It would great, be great to have uh, more stuff like that again. All right. So there was some other stuff happening or there has been some other stuff happening in Europe since we last broadcast. Mm. 
Matt, I know we wanted to talk just for a minute about the uh, results of Paris-Nice, which concluded last weekend, but since we didn't podcast last week, we didn't have a chance to talk about it. Yep. Um, not really worth getting into a stage-by-stage breakdown of that, but uh, the the final stage of that race, which was turned out to be the deciding stage, yeah. was a really fantastic race to watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely uh, electrifying stuff. Uh, going into the stage, it was... Wait, am I going to get this wrong? Simon Yates? Yes. Simon Yates was leading. He'd won the, day, the stage the day before. Uh, and, you know, had quite a decent uh, gap. Uh, but uh, Mark Soler got into, got into the, uh, the break and... Once you know the, this this stage, I think this format that they've come up with with this stage where it's kind of up and down in the hills around Nice, and then it finishes with this spectacular descent into the city. Right, uh, has really made just just exciting racing, really attacking stuff, and as in the last, I think the last three years now, it's come down to. Uh, I don't, you know, four or five seconds at the most. Well, this race was decided with the time bonus that yep. uh, Solaire got for finishing third on the day. Uh, he was in a break of three. Yeah. And um, never really looked like he was wanted to contest for the stage win, at, as you would expect. He had no interest in, in winning the stage. His only interest was in winning the race. And... Uh, but the luckily, the two guys that he was in the break with uh, were both very interested in winning the stage because right. they had no GC hopes at all. Uh, so he didn't he didn't have to race them, and they just had to race each other. Mm-hmm. So Solaire was able to basically get a free ride uh, all the way all the way into the finish, uh, and a pretty quick ride into the finish, which ultimately helped him both overcome the uh, small time gap that he needed to make up. I think it was about 30 seconds that he was behind right um yates and and he managed to do that uh, yates had found himself again just about 30 seconds back with a smaller chase group he'd actually gotten gapped on the climb by the isagare uh yeah the isagare brothers yeah. yeah by the isagare brothers yeah uh he'd gotten gapped on the climb by the isagare brothers but then they both crashed yeah they oh, crashed each other into yeah. each other didn't they well it it, it whichever one of them, I guess it was Jan Isiger, slipped on a on a slick hairpin mm. and his brother was right behind him and just sort of ran into him. So they didn't, they didn't I guess you call that crashing him out. Um, he sort of rode into him. But they, uh, so Yates managed to catch up to him when they crashed and then uh, there was a, a fairly select chase group of about uh, six or seven that were all coming into the finish together. And Yates, you know, the announcers knew it how close it was, mm-hmm. but it almost looked as if Yates didn't quite realize how close he was to maintaining his overall and, and winning right. uh, the race overall. He just almost looked like he was just kind of slow pedaling into the, into the finish. Like, Oh, well, I didn't win the stage. I'm just going to kind of ride it out here with this, you know, with this chase group. But you were saying afterward that, that they, he was interviewed and he said he was giving it everything he had. Yeah. He just had nothing left in He's, the tank. Yeah, he said he had nothing left because um, that was just a, you know, a furious chase in there. And he, cause, because he'd been, you know, you could see he'd been dropped. Uh, he was, you know, he was getting off the back earlier, you know, earlier. Yeah. 
And so, you know, obviously he was pretty fatigued. But what's interesting as well about that stage is it was very short, you know, by uh, pro bike racing terms. Right, it was, about, it was only uh, less than 100K. Yeah. yeah. So short stage, lots of, lot, lots of people are going to try and make a move. So it, um, you know, it wasn't the traditional, okay, here's a bunch of guys in the break. We're eventually going to catch them and then we'll fight it out amongst ourselves. This is a subject of another podcast, perhaps, and certainly not a point that we want to digress into right now. But isn't it, isn't it not funny, but isn't it interesting um, that these races that have these short stages like that, the sort of 100K mm-hmm. stages, can often just really produce some fireworks. Yeah. Um, race directors need to take notice of that, and and maybe you see it a little bit more often, you know, in the last five or so years than you used to. These, yep. these shorter stages. I think I think part of that is maybe that the riders are sort of asking for it. You know, I mean, it just it's got to just be uh, just horrific day mm. after day after day to go out and do these, you know, almost two hundred k stages. Uh, or 150k stages just day after day after day right. so that i think the riders like it and 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 from fans perspective um just makes for electric racing and this was just yet another example of a short stage leading to a, a tremendous uh tremendous racing yeah and um, which brings us in contrast to uh terreno adriatico which kind of overlaps you know half of the gc guys go and do Paris and half of them go do terreno yeah. Um, there were a couple of stages on Terreno. There was one that was like 240k. Yeah. I mean, it was almost as long as uh, it, it was a you know it's a classic and incredibly long stuff. You know, which you're not going to. The thing about having like a hundred k stage is you can watch the whole thing, and there's going to be so much attacking at the start of a stage like that. It's right. going to be exciting the whole time, and it's you know it's not going to from a TV point of view, you look, you know, you could be looking at something that's like three and a bit hours long at the most, you know, so it's like watching a football game, you know, time-wise. Um, but well, yeah, it was also cold at Terreno Adriatica this year as well. So some of these guys were, uh, on these long stages were, uh, really, um, you know, having to suffer through the elements as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Paris-Nice too, apparently, you know, the, uh, they had some pretty miserable weather. I mean, the first few days were absolutely awful. Uh, but the one thing that was really touching at Terreno, um, the stage on the Sunday, which uh, the other Yates twin uh, won the stage, uh, which uh, finished with a circuit in uh, um, Michele Scarponi's hometown. That's and right. And huge crowds there. And not only were there huge crowds there, but Frankie was there. Frankie, the uh, the uh, the parrot. Yeah, the uh, yes, Fra- um, Michaeli's uh, riding companion was there. I saw some great stuff. Frankie was like hanging out on a lamp post uh, with a bunch of people while they were watching the race. Filatrano was the name of the town. Filatrano, that's right. Because uh, Scarponi was the eagle eagle of Filatrano. The eagle of Filatrano, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there was some great footage. I saw one of the team cars shot of, uh, Frankie flying alongside them, flying along with them. Yeah, the, that was, I saw, car. I saw a great shot on Instagram. It was a, um, it was a poster inside the window of a, you know, bank or some sort of, you know, downtown, uh, 
establishment in, in Filatrano with a giant uh, poster of Michele Scarponi in the window. And yeah. Frankie was per- right. was perched on a telephone pole yeah. just outside. It almost appeared that he was sort of, you know, looking in through the window <laughs> with, you know, hanging out with his old friend, uh, Michele. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. Um, two time trials in that race. Uh, there was a team time trial at the start. That's right. Which Mark Cavendish crashed in. Uh, and there was a an ind- very short individual time trial at the end, a 10K time trial to finish. And uh, Mihal Kwiatkowski took the win. Uh, that's two, uh, two week-long stage races he's won this year. Um, so, you know, pretty... Uh, his, his form is looking good, but... He wasn't looking that great in Milan San Remo. Yeah, well, caught I, out. one of the reasons that I put him on my squad for Milan yep. San Remo is that Me he'd too. been looking so good uh, up to that point. Obviously, the defending champion, he looked to be on good form. I don't know what happened. I guess he just didn't have the legs to 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 get up to Paggio this year. I mean, he... He, he said he, that they... He said when, uh, you know, he said that everybody was just looking around at each other when Nibali went and they just, you know, they let him get too much of a gap. And then it was the whole bunch had to chase. And, uh, yeah, he said he didn't really have anything left in the sprint. I think he was 11th. So, uh, you know, we got some points from him there. So there was also a, uh, uh, really pretty wonderful, uh, women's race, Mm. uh, that we've been talking about most notably for the winning move that was made. Uh, by Kasia Nuadoma. Yeah. Am I am I pronouncing that right? I think right? that's it, yeah. Kasia yeah. Nuadoma of uh, Canyon SRAM. Uh, I was surprised, actually. This They said this was her first women's world tour race that she'd won, um, which surprised me. I, I thought she'd won... I mean, I guess she'd won other races before, but not ones that were actually... Yeah, and uh, she's, she's been on the podium in, in some big races, has she not? Wasn't been, she on the podium in... in uh, Strada Bianchi, she's finished yeah. second three times in a row. Yeah. Yeah, so obviously her form has come good, and because she got second in Strada Bianchi and won this, uh, she's now leading the Women's World Tour because that's the first two events, so... So she posted on Instagram on Saturday... Uh, wishing her uh, boyfriend, uh, Tay-Tay, mm-hmm. uh, Taylor Finney, good luck in Milan San Remo. Yeah. Uh, which didn't work out that well for him no. on, on Saturday. Or his team, really. Or his team. Simon Clark, uh, I think, fractured three vertebrae. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so. So I guess, uh, I guess Kasia on Sunday decided that uh, somebody mm. in the family needed to go win a bike race yeah and some de- silverware. decided she would uh she would do something about that so congrats and uh she uh she won the uh she won the family yeah this and she um she said that she really took inspiration from nibali's attack and uh she went from about 9k to go and and attacked super hard solo and uh i think she came in about 30 seconds ahead of uh Head of the you know uh, small chase groups, so. and didn't you say at one point with about two k to go, she almost got caught by the chase group, mm. and 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 
you know, which is unusual in a in a bike race. I mean, right. normally she if, was down, if, it was down to like seven seconds or something, but then she still managed to kick and and pull away again. Yeah, that's that's crazy because you know that time gap generally, you know, especially with a solo attack like that, generally only moves in one direction. It either it either keeps getting bigger, yeah, or it starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you get caught. It very rarely accordions in and out like that. Yeah, um, that's when you that's when you know you've got you know hard man in you and you you just turn it on and, and and find that find that extra gear so you know kudos to her that was uh that was good stuff yeah and then uh chantal black current world champion was second and uh mariana voss was third so good to see her form coming back um but uh yeah new adoma really looks spectacular and uh i think things are really starting to click for that team for canyon sram especially um, having her on board has really made a difference for them yeah no, it, it's been a fun team to watch. Uh, Rafa has them uh, kitted out very nicely mm. in those uh, multicolored kits that they that they've got. Yep, and they've got a lot of talent on the squad, and uh, obviously it's starting to pay off with big results. Yeah. All right. So speaking of uh, of Frankie and and. Uh, and birds uh, flying alongside bicycle races mm. we were out in uh, st bernard parish this weekend and had some wildlife uh, a few wildlife sightings including some birds flying uh, alongside us we had some beautiful white herons that uh, mm-hmm. flew up out of the swamp that sort of coasting alongside of us as we were out uh, out doing some out doing some graveling um we had uh, a gator sighting. In fact, a double gator sighting. Saw a mama gator and a baby gator in nice. the uh, in the uh, swamps out back of uh, of Araby on on Sunday. Um, really uh, having a good time exploring some some gravel roads back there and um, hanging out with the uh, with our uh, Kanza gals, Dirty Kanza gals, yeah. who are doing their training for Dirty Kanza in. Uh, uh, just a couple months from now, I think early June is when the is when the race is. Yeah. So they're trying to get out and and do a bunch of off road riding, and um, I, we all enjoy riding off road and are more than happy to in, to indulge that uh, that training request and get out there and ride some with them. Yeah. It's been great, and uh, they also were doing uh, a fundraiser or they have a number of fundraisers that they've got going on including one that just happened this past weekend at roulette they had a gold sprints and uh raised some money for for their trip i think they're doing so well i think they told me on the ride on sunday that they now have raised enough that they've got their entry fees covered great which for uh, dirty Kanza is not cheap so they're now working on uh, their transportation and lodging costs and they've got a couple couple more fundraisers coming up yep including the uh, gravel circuit race that's uh, happening uh, first weekend in april yes we've talked about that looking forward to it yeah me too and uh so the gold sprints just to uh throw a little shout out to the winners uh our buddy uh blake single speed uh nola fixed rider uh, blake won the men's uh, open and uh taylor gorman won the women's open uh you may remember taylor matt as uh our former barista when the club ride used to meet at manhattan jack years Ah, and years ago okay yeah she is a she is a uh, cyclist does a lot of 
but does a lot of bike touring, uh, rides, I think, with some of the NOLA fixed guys, and apparently crushes gold sprints. Yeah. So Congratulations uh, to both of them. Congratulations to you guys, and um, keep up the good work with the fundraising, uh, Elise, Allie, and uh, Christina. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, we spoke to them... Uh, few days ago uh maybe doing some uh, some features with them about their uh, dirty kanza stuff so yeah so yeah. i was uh, elise and i have been chatting and um uh elise has, has volunteered uh to do some remote recording while she's uh up at the race and we're trying to get her hooked up and she's trying to make some connections with some folks up there uh to get some interviews and and do some uh do do sort of a road diary, which we will uh, broadcast on the podcast. So yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah. So we just got to uh, do what we can to help those help those uh, ladies uh, get up there. And um, so come on out to the gravel circuit race. I think they also had a bike wash this weekend that they said went pretty well. Yeah, um, I think that was for... Um, oh, uh, that's right. That was Catherine for, for her um, doing the AIDS life cycle in, that's right. uh, in California. That's yeah. right. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, they all went and got their bikes washed on Saturday and then immediately, uh, came out with us on Sunday and got them trashed in a bunch of dirty gravel. Mm, yeah. But that's what, uh, that's what bike washes are for is to get your bike clean <laughs> so you can go get it dirty again. Right. Yeah. That's what I did. Uh, the day before we went and, uh, rode on the North shore and did that gravel ride. I washed my bike and then, uh, I got it filthy, but. Thankfully, that torrential downpour then washed my bike again for yeah. me. So that was that was handy. Uh, well, well, well. Uh, I have reached the end of my list of things that we wanted to talk about. All right. I've got just um, one or two things I wanted to mention. Uh, big shout to Bo Dennis. Uh, again, he uh, recommended me going with a wheels manufacturing bottom bracket. I just removed my PressFit 30, uh, not PressFit 30, my BB86 bottom yep. bracket tonight. And then on my way over here, I stopped by Lowe's to get some PTFE lubricant, which they recommend me using to install my new threaded BB86 wheels manufacturing bottom bracket. I have to say this, removing a PressFit bottom bracket from a carbon frame is a terrifying experience. In other words, you are ready to just explode your carbon bottom bracket at any moment with this extremely weighty tool that you are pressing lots of... Basically hammering um, something that looks like some kind of an anal probe. Ouch. Uh, and basically hammering it uh, through your bottom bracket to get the cups out. And it's amazing how hard you have to bang that thing. And it was a little terrifying. I gotta say, on a you know an expensive carbon frame. Well, the idea of hammering an anal probe through my bottom bracket <laughs> does sound terrifying, Matt. I'll give you that. Yeah. So uh, on that bombshell. No. Uh, yeah. So th that was that. And uh, well, I appreciate that. And yes, that's great. Uh, thanks to Bo for recommending that to you. Mm. Um, about four years late for me, I've had a press fit BB eighty six bottom bracket on my cross bike for the last four years, and just been absolutely just plagued with bottom bracket issues so Bo where were you four years ago mm. uh, when I started having all the problems with my press fit BB86 well to be fair you didn't ask him back then that's true well, I didn't, you have, didn't a have a podcast that's true 
So we'll see how it goes. I'm going to uh, probably install it tonight when I get home, uh, the new one. So uh, we'll uh, find out if that solves all my problems or not. If it does, I still have that BB86 press fit bottom bracket on my current cyclocross bike. And although I'm thinking about getting a new one, I still do own the one I have. So if it works out well for you, Mm. uh, maybe I'll swap it out. Spoiler alert, I bet the new one you're thinking of getting uses a BB-86 too. I don't know if it does or not. Well, we'll find out. Let's yeah, get we'll, back uh, next week on that. That's true. Yeah, we'll have uh, we'll have a guest next week that can answer that question for us. Yeah, okay. So a little bit of a teaser there. Well, I'm pretty much done. Yeah, great. So in that case, uh, Matt, I will start it off by signing off saying that uh, this is the T-Bone and I am going to fly like the eagle of Filatrano out of here. <laughs> I guess we better play that then. All right. Uh, This is me saying bye as well. Bye. Good night.